Would you look at James chapter 3? Tonight, James, who is everybody's mentor for an everyday faith, is going to remind us in some really stark, powerful, incredibly, I'll just say it, bleak terms. He's going to warn us of the power of words. James is going to remind us as our mentor of how much power our words have. Last week was a really formational, I think foundational message in our letter because it's James' crucial teaching on how it is that we get this faith we profess to be lived out in real, actual life. That was a really crucial message. Tonight is a really intensely practical message. So would you look with me in James chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. He's got this mini sort of lecture sandwiched in the middle of this short and powerful letter. And it's all about the power of words. And when I say the power of words, the way James will say it is tame your tongue. And the way I'm going to say it tonight is watch your mouth. You with me? Would you guys mind standing with me, if you're willing and able, as we read verses 1 to 12 of the letter of James? It's going to be on the screen if you don't have a Bible. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder, wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, Full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father. And with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth comes praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce Fresh water. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Thank you all. James reminds us of the power of words. And he gives us this bleak assessment. Not one person by themselves can tame the tongue. So good night, guys. I don't have anything for you. What James is after, and this is on the screen, is consistency. What James is after is consistency in our speech. And here's what he's after. If Jesus is Lord of all, if you said, Jesus, you got my whole heart, my whole life for my whole life, 
then Jesus is Lord of our tongue and our speech too. But what James is saying as a warning is, you cannot tame your tongue by yourself. And everybody knows this to be true if you stubbed your toe. I want to confess to you, I have muttered some of the nastiest stuff under my breath. And I'm, I'm not even saying that quite as a joke. There is just something about our tongues that just can't be controlled. That's why we have that phrase, a slip of the tongue. So what James is after is consistency. If we are professing faith in Jesus with our tongue, we need to be aware, number one, of what we're saying. And then we need to surrender that. We need to be people of blessing and not cursing. And that's what we saw at the end of that passage. Why? Because words have an incredible capacity to bless and build up others or to tear them down. Here's experiment number one. Think about your favorite teacher. How many of you, it was elementary school? You've got that person, okay? Elementary school. How many of you, it was middle school? The dark years. Ain't nobody loved the middle school teachers. I have blocked out most of junior high. Who likes it? Kelly? Yeah. She's a junior high teacher. Y'all pray for Kelly. How about high school? Yes? Look at this. And you know what's funny? We have like one, two, we'll count Courtney, three, four, five teachers. Six. Seven, we have a lot of teachers. Amanda was a teacher. Eight, what do you think it was that helped you choose your career and path? Was it not a teacher that helped you? All of you who raised your hands and were thinking of your favorite teacher, can you point to an encouraging word at a pivotal moment in your life that really kind of opened a door that you can actually be who you want to be? That you can actually do and learn and experience what you want to experience. Am I the only one that's had this experience? Maybe it was a mentor, but surely it was someone who was encouraging you, instructing you. Maybe it was a teacher. Experiment number two. Do you remember a time that someone important to you said the words, I love you, for the first time? Not just someone in a dating relationship, although that could be the case. But I remember at my wedding, my brother, who is the strong, silent type, we didn't come from a family where we were overly effusive about our emotions and our love for one another in words. But I remember at my wedding, my brother was one of the best men, and he gave a short and sweet speech, and that was the first time I heard him say the words, I love you. And from the strong, silent type who was in his 20s, for, that to, for me to hear that for the first time, that was a powerful, powerful thing. That was a powerful, transformative thing. So we think about our teacher. We think about someone important to us saying, I love you. James reminds us of the power of words because just as it's true that they can build us up and encourage us and stick in our brains, you all know also the shadow side of it. Now think of your least favorite teacher. 
Think of that coach. Think of that parent. Think of someone who is in a position of instructing you on the way to go. And now it doesn't get so fun because you have lodged in your mind some sentence that may have been said carelessly, that may have been said with enough venom behind it that you still can't shake it. This person was put in authority as a teacher, coach, a mentor in your life. Our second experiment, we talked about someone important to us. The shadow side of that, we all have people that have said, I love you, but then they've also the ones that have the most capacity to drag us down and bring us down. For many of us, that's parents. For many of us, that's uh, significant others. That's why James wants to wake us up to the power our speech has over others. I think the trouble is we just talk and talk and talk And we really don't filter and we really don't become aware of it until it's already said. And so James gives us these illustrations about how the tongue, though small in the body, its power to build or destroy is so disproportionate. Even though it's small, it has the greatest power to destroy. In those experiments, I asked you about a teacher and I asked you about somebody you love. James in this chapter, as we read earlier, he starts with teachers. And then at the end of this passage, he talks about brothers and sisters. Watch how you speak to those you love in the community of faith and in your family. Because it's inconsistent to bless God and then turn around to people who are made in God's image and curse them and condemn them. So the two areas we really are zeroing in on is teachers and then those we are in the family of God with and even extended out to our broader family. You with me? Look back at verse 1. We'll talk about teachers first. The concern here is that not not many of these people should rush out and go teach because the potential there for teachers is really, really great. To send people down the wrong path. When James was writing his letter, about 10% of the population could read and write. 10% of the population could read or write. You line up 10 people, only one of them could read or write. When James is writing this letter to these new churches, and everybody's coming around saying that they know what's going on, I've got some spiritual wisdom for you, I'll tell you how to live, they have A great, great responsibility. So he says, look with me back in verse 1. Not many should you rush out and do it because you will be judged more strictly. So I have to be really aware that this passage ate my lunch all week. Because why? We are up here gathering, those of us who are preaching and teaching and called to use that gift, what we are doing is shaping an image of God in our life with Him. And that is something that I should not take lightly, that we don't take lightly when people come up here and preach. I think about how this works itself out when we begin to say things that don't really fit the image of God we have in Jesus. And I think about in the book, The Good and Beautiful God, by James, unbelievable. Was that okay? Was that like the storm thing or did something fall up there? The sheetrock fell. Everybody pause. 
It was sunny when we walked in. Now it's thundering and raining. And this building is falling apart up there. Maybe this is an omen that I really need to watch what I'm saying. Talking about teachers. The story I want to share with you is a story that James Bryan Smith shared. We did a class, a book study on it. We got to connect with the author via Skype. And he shares a, a time in his life during the eighth month of his wife's pregnancy when she was carrying their daughter. During the eighth month of her pregnancy, they found out that she had a rare chromosomal disease and the doctors told them that she would die at birth. So they had one month to shift gears from moving from baby shower to a baby's funeral. And so he relates this story as a teacher of God's Word. He had connected with many teachers and pastors of God's Word. And one of them reached out to him and said, hey, we should have lunch. And so they went to lunch and James Bryan Smith sits down. And this old friend of his, who was an ordained pastor and preacher, looks at him and says, Jim, i got to ask you, who sinned? Did you sin or did your wife sin? Because this child is going to die because of your sin. The potential for teachers of God's word to do such incredible damage is just unsurpassed. It's so much more than our elementary school teachers and grade school teachers. Because what happened is that earworm of bad doctrine that, by the way, Jesus, when he was asked the same question, hey, here's this blind guy who sinned, him or his parents, Jesus says, neither. So that's the true narrative we looked at. It is a result of the fallen world, the chaos and sin and Satan and death that seems to have reigned. Jesus came to undo it, and he said, neither of them sin. He's blind so that God's glory might be revealed when I undo this damage. So what happened is, Jim Smith goes home and he's saying, I didn't do anything that bad to warrant the death of a child. It must have been my wife. And so what happens is, it just steamrolls and steamrolls and steamrolls. And as we read earlier, we see James, in one of his illustrations, talks about how our words can be a fire. And what happened in Jim Smith's life is he had this great forest. And that is his understanding of God to be good and loving. And what happened at that lunch was this man set a spark and the forest fire erupted in flames. And he started to question, number one, how good is my wife? And number two, how good is God? Our words, especially from the mouths of teachers, are incredibly powerful. Our teaching understands, excuse me, our teaching shapes our understanding of God. So don't rush too much. So then he concedes as he moves just a step back from teachers to the broader community. He takes a step back and he says, but look, I understand that nobody's perfect. Y'all see that in verse 2? I understand that no one's perfect. He says, we all make mistakes. He says, so anybody that is perfect or never at fault in what they say, they're able to keep their whole body in check. This was a common Jewish understanding that says, hey, we all make mistakes. It's also a common Jewish understanding that the guiltiest party is our mouths. 
If you read the book of Proverbs, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of references to how our mouths are the first one to drag us off into sin. This is pretty crazy, by the way. Was it supposed to rain tonight? Yeah. Well, I just want to... We're not going to look at Proverbs. Let's look at James briefly. And if you're taking notes, why don't we move through this a little bit quickly and you can just write these verse numbers down. What he's saying is this understanding that your mouth, though small, has the greatest capacity for sin. And he ties your speech together with your discipleship. So let's look. You were right, Ben. Let's go back to those. And y'all write these verses down. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. James 1.19 Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. James 1.26 Basically, if your mouth is spitting all kinds of fire against others or it's tearing down people's idea of who God is, However good you do for the homeless, it's worthless. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. James 2.12 Why don't you write down James 4.11 Then write down James 5.9 Then write down James 5.12 What we have is this understanding that it's not just teachers that need to be careful. It's those of us who are following Jesus. Because our mouths, though small, have the greatest capacity for sin and evil in our relationships with others. So he goes on, he gives two illustrations. He talks about the bit of a horse. He talks about the small rudder of a ship. And he says that even though it's small, it steers the whole thing into goodness or destruction. This is insane. So maybe we just, as we look again at the end of this and this conclusion, maybe I can just move to some practical applications here. Because our speech can set fires that we can't necessarily come back from, I think James gives us a good reminder that those who are around us are watching and listening. And I think about our children in our church I think about those that are living in our homes. And I think what James is after is saying, if you say yes to Jesus on Saturdays and Wednesdays, does your speech reflect that of our Savior's in the day-to-day as you speak to your co-workers, your kids? By the words of your mouth, can they see the reality of your heart that's been redeemed by our Savior? His conclusion, if you look with me in verse 7, all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, sea creatures, they can be tamed and they have been tamed. But verse 8, no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. If we are not watching our speech in our community, the words of gossip or the words of bad doctrine being taught can eat away the body of Christ just like a snake's venom can eat away at our physical bodies. And so we need to also be careful of how this poison can seep through our community when we begin to undermine one another in this community. 
And so he brings that to home in verse 9 when he says, With the tongue we can praise our Lord and Father when we worship together, but with it we can curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. What James means here is, it's inconsistent for us as a worshiping community to say, yes, Jesus, I love you, I'm with you. Yes, God, you created all things, except this person you created in your image. When he uses the word curse, he means, you, he means you're condemning them and writing them off. May our church not be a place where we sing all these good and beautiful things on the screen, but then go out and either write someone off, or worse, tell them off. If we are going to live into our name as the neighborhood church, one of the things I've been thinking and praying of this week is, Lord, would our church look more and more like one of Jesus' dinner parties that He had? Filled with all the sinners and all the saints that are just as comfortable at this space where there's just wild, wild people with all sorts of backgrounds. Would we be just as comfortable with those people as we would with the Pope? Or the hoitiest, toitiest, you name it, church folk? Would our church table, would the table at the neighborhood church have enough room for all the people God would want to bring to us? And may we speak words of blessing, not condemnation. May we speak words of blessing that says God has an abundant life for you. And you may sell yourself short on what you can do and what God can do through you, but would we use our words to build them up and equip them? And not, as James said, curse those or condemn those who God has given an original blessing by making them in His image. Could we stoke the image of our co-workers and family and friends? And would we resolve to speak words of encouragement and blessing? Could we resolve this week to be aware of our speech and one day, once a day rather, say an encouraging word to our spouse? And once a day say an encouraging word to our roommate. Once a day say an encouraging word to our children. Because the thing is, you may not say I love you and you may think they just assume it. Do not assume they are eager for your affection. They are eager for your leadership. They are eager to learn what love looks like and sounds like. And you're setting the tone. More than our president now is setting the tone. Let's undo and dismantle all that filth that's out there in the kingdom of this world. And let us speak fresh and living water to those who are in need. We set the tone more than any music, any movies, or more than any politician or whoever. Any celebrity, whoever. We set the tone. Because we have relationships God has gifted us with, with people made in His image. May we build them up, and may we be aware of our speech. And though we cannot tame it ourselves, will we surrender our hearts and our tongues to the one who can redeem and restore us. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring 
produce fresh water. A study out of the University of Arizona says we speak around 16,000 words per day. May we be a church who speaks fresh water. May we be a church who begins to audit the words we're saying in our mouths. Because as Jesus says, what comes out of your mouth reveals the condition of your heart in Luke chapter 6. May we be people who audit the words that are coming out of our mouths as a check to our hearts to see if we are living consistently with the Savior. May we be people who speak words of life so that most of our 16,000 would be words that build up others rather than destroy. Because what the world needs, what our neighborhood needs, are people of encouragement. Let's pray. Lord, it's been a long day and a long week for so many of us. Some of us might be thinking about that word that slipped, that careless statement. It may have not been shouted, it may have been whispered. But Lord, perhaps you're inviting us to turn and repent, to find you close and ready to forgive. And in your grace and your power, would you help us tame what we cannot tame ourselves? And would you help us be people who speak blessing and not cursing? May we be people who are slow to speak. May we be a church who are ready to invite those you've invited to the party. That we would speak life and good news that your kingdom is for all. We ask all this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Go in peace.